What I would like to do with you this morning is, is take an illustration of one of the parts of the law of Moses that we might not think about as being particularly significant, perhaps not um, especially relevant to me now. Um, and I want to show how even as Christians in our time, we can meditate on this particular law that God gave to the children of Israel and learn some very valuable uh, lessons from it. So I invite you to turn in your Old Testament to the 25th chapter of the book of Leviticus. Chapter 25 in the book of Leviticus. I'll also have the uh, passages on the screen this morning, almost every single one of them. I imagine you are quite familiar with the concept of a Sabbath day. A Sabbath day. Um, I'm sure you know it's one of the, the Ten Commandments. What you may or may not know is that it's actually a part of a, a large collection of, of Sabbath laws that God gave to the children of Israel. And that collection speaks to not just a Sabbath day, but and how every seventh day the children of Israel weren't supposed to do any work. It also included, amongst other things, a, a Sabbath year where every seventh year the land was not supposed to be plowed or worked. It was to lie fallow. So what you did on a Sabbath day, now you did for a Sabbath year. And then on top of that, every seventh, seventh year, every, so every seventh Sabbath year, you would then have the year of Jubilee, which is sort of a, a double Sabbath rest for the land. And we're not going to dive into all of that and all of the things that happened, especially during the year of Jubilee. That was quite a remarkable year uh, to come about in an Israelite's lifetime. A great deal of things happened in that particular year. What I want to focus on today is just one aspect of all of this, and that is the, the seventh year, the Sabbath year. So in Leviticus 25, starting in verse 2, uh, God tells Moses, or in verse 1, God tells Moses that he wants them to speak to the sons of Israel and say to them this. When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired servant, and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle, and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. This law, the underlying portion here, that, that every seven years they're not to work their land. I might look back and, and at that and say, that's just, you know... One of those curious laws that they lived by as, as a part of the Sabbath. And, and perhaps sometimes the main thing we think about uh, that kind of a law is that we're quite happy it no longer applies to us and we don't have to do it. Um, I think sometimes we may even feel that one of the values of the Old Testament is to, is to show us the, the comparison, to teach us by contrast 
how glad we ought to be for the system that we have now in Christ. There's actually some truth to that that Hebrews talks about, that what we have in Christ is just so much better and we ought to be grateful for that. But it doesn't have anything to do with uh, fewer restrictions and having an easier time and, and that kind of stuff, really. I want to suggest that we might think about this particular law and ask ourselves, what can I learn by meditating on this law that was given by God to the children of Israel? That every seven years they weren't supposed to work their land. I think there are quite a number of lessons, valuable ones, that you and I could could pull from this consideration that would be of great value to us. Um, for the sake of time, we'll limit them to just a few. Uh, but I'd encourage you to, to think even further about it throughout this week um, as you have time to do so. I want to suggest to you, first of all, that I think this law was designed to teach the children of Israel. And then we, by extension, as we reflect back on it, something quite important about what it means to live by faith. To live by faith. That expression can quite easily become words that I say. And just about that. I'm at worship on the Lord's Day, so I must be walking by faith. So I want you to think about this law that would have put people in a spot that I suspect would be difficult for most of us, at least, to try to relate to. Where every seventh year they could not work their land. And, and remember... This is an agricultural economy, an agricultural society. So it's not like you've got a nine to five job and then you've got a little garden in the backyard. And in year seven, you're not allowed to tend that garden. You've got to go get your stuff from somewhere else. For the vast majority of people in the land of Israel, almost all of their income is derived from what they do in agriculture, what they make from the ground. And you start telling people that every seventh year you're essentially going to quit your job for that year. Maybe some like that, like the idea of a sabbatical, as it were. But for most of us, you've just stuck yourself out there you, with no basic source of income. And you are trusting the Lord to provide for you. Now, I wish I had a more clear picture of how that always worked out each year. Um, but starting to think about that, you know, it's not a part of the new covenant. So I don't I wouldn't do this. But if I got up and I. I pointed to some New Testament passage that said, if it existed, that said we had to quit our jobs every seventh year, that become quite real. That'd get real serious real fast. Because immediately the question comes, how am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to do this? So God puts the children of Israel in a position where they are going to have to live by faith and walk by faith. Where they've got no choice but to say, we trust the Lord to provide for us. And this doesn't get to just be words. It's words that they had to put into an absolutely real application once every seven years. So to draw from the New Testament as well, think about some of Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6. Uh, from part of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6 and verse 19... Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He goes on to say uh, in a few sentences that you can't serve two masters, talking about God and, and, and material things. And then in verse 25, 
He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value than they? I feel I've, many times I've read this, and it's been little more than just the words that are on the page. Uh, it's especially comforting when Jesus puts it with, or, or concludes it with that simple question. Aren't you worth much more than those, much more than those birds? But I can read this text and know I'm not supposed to worry about those material things and then go home and immediately get worried about those kinds of things. Immediately. Sometimes I think we think of worship as getting to come here and leave all of that at the door and focus on what's most important and draw encouragement from our brethren and and, and encouragement from spending time praising God and drawing closer to God. And then it feels like you leave this place, you get back in that car, you're headed back towards home where all those bills get mailed to. And all those anxieties and concerns come right back. Um, Perhaps I'm not the only one who's ever felt that way. I do wonder what those words here in Matthew chapter 6 would have sounded like to people who were at that time living under a law from God that says every seventh year you don't plow your fields. And they start thinking, don't be anxious as to what you eat or what you shall put on. And, and being admonished to look at the birds of the air who do not sow or reap or gather, and yet they're taken care of. Jesus is challenging them. And by extension, of course, us. To have a great deal of faith. He says in verse 33, instead, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore... Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You think about that Sabbath year law. That ought to make some change in my life. And, and one thing I think it ought to do is remind me of, of sometimes how shallow my concept of living by faith can be. And so that's the first thing. In thinking about this law that I I wanted to bring up, what does it really mean to say that I'm going to walk by faith, to say that I'm going to trust God to provide for me as opposed to trusting in myself? The second lesson I think you learn by reflecting on how every seventh year they were supposed to allow their land to just lie fallow is that it would be a very powerful check for them on something such as greed. At least it ought to be. Um... Now, one of the things that you learn pretty quickly when you go and study the Old Testament is that this law, having to do with the Sabbath day and then certainly the Sabbath year, and by all means the year of Jubilee, where you've likely got to do this two years in a row, um, it's one of the first set of laws that gets ignored by the children of Israel, just, just almost right off the bat. They're constantly violating this law. You might remember when they're sent into Babylonian captivity towards the end of the Old Testament period, it's this law that is singled out as one they were repeatedly violating. And God said he's going to send them into captivity in part so that the land could have the decades of Sabbaths that it was owed and make up a little bit for lost time. 
and have those Sabbaths repaid while Israel were slaves in Babylon. So being reminded of that, not just how difficult it would be to walk by faith in this kind of a circumstance, but also just about how natural greediness can be sometimes for us, I think is an important reminder you can pull from this text. All of us, as evidenced by by this law and evidenced by what Jesus said in in chapter 6, need to be reminded that life consists of more than just material goods. And it certainly consists of more than just piling those up. Um, I think if you had to take every seventh year off, if you were forced to do that, you've got to save for that. You've got to be ready for that. Now, maybe you have such a a job to where you have vast resources coming in to where, yes, you are able to to take care of your matters and, and even the matters of others, help other folks out without depleting your resources and your estate continues to grow. But for a lot of those folks, this whole living by paycheck to paycheck to paycheck thing isn't new to our generation. For a lot of those folks, you're going to deplete your resources over the course of that year and have to start again. You're going to dissipate a good bit of your savings, if not all of it, throughout that year. And it's going to force you to reevaluate things. So if every seventh year God says, you're not going to work those fields, you're not going to tend to any of that, you're not going to bother with any of that, you're going to observe a Sabbath year to me, that's a, a, a regular reminder of what God views as most essential, as that Sabbath day was supposed to be. Again, turning to a New Testament passage that speaks to this subject, a very powerful check on greed mentioned in the 12th chapter of Luke's gospel. This is where you find the parable of the rich fool uh, in Luke 12, verse 13. The occasion here is that someone comes up to Jesus and wants him to to get in the middle of a matter uh, between him and his brother. Help sort this issue out. We've got this division over our family inheritance I want you to go in and tell my brother that he's supposed to do the right thing. And Jesus' first response was, who made me a judge over you? Relevant passage, perhaps, to some of what we've been talking about in our uh, Sunday morning classes. Who made me a judge over you? Now, ultimately, yes, he is. But in this particular context, why would you come to me, this teacher, and expect me to sort this out for you? But then in verse 15, he said to them, take care. And be on your guard against all forms of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. All forms of greed. So greed can take a variety of different forms, and you've got to be on guard against it. And to help illustrate this, he tells them a parable by saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all of these crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. That doesn't make a whole lot of difference to this particular text right here, but I don't picture the man in this parable as the one who stored up goods in preparation for the Sabbath year. I imagine if this were a real guy, he's working that land just as shrewdly in that year as he is any other, building up more and more and more possessions for himself. But the point 
very simply, is that God put the children of Israel in a situation where once every seven years they've got to sit back and reflect on whether their goal is to be rich or whether it is to serve the Lord. Whether it is earthly things or heavenly things. Whether their goal is to have a comfortable life, as it was thought of in their day, or to trust in the Lord. And if you had to choose between the two, sometimes you don't. But if you had to choose between the two, which would you choose? And as evidenced by the fact that they often just skip this whole Sabbath business entirely, they made their choice. And you see how things pan out for them. A third thing I think the law uh, reminded the children of Israel of is that God is creator. God is the creator. So the law of the Sabbath and all of those aspects is based on the, the cycle of seven. So constantly related to the fact that in six days God made the heavens and the earth and on the seventh day he rested. So anytime an Israelite observes an aspect of this law, they're reminded of the fact that they live in a world that was created by God. Because we rest on the seventh day. Why? Because God did. And from that Sabbath day comes the Sabbath year and year of Jubilee. All those things are based back to that. That this world was created by God. And so on the seventh day, we rest too. Now that idea that this world was created by God and therefore we is something our society pushes further and further from its memory. So God fixes this into their calendar as a constant reminder. If God really is creator of everything, however, he is ultimately, and we'll call this uh, either 3.5 or, or 3B if you like, he's ultimately the owner of everything. If he created it all, it all belongs to him. So you might say that underlying this whole law that says every seventh year they're to let the land rest is the presupposition that the land doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And he's the one who said what you're going to do with this land and how it's going to be used. And that on year seven, this is what you're going to do with it. So when you start to think about that, I think there's something else that you see about what it means to say God is, is the creator May I suggest again how easily a statement of faith can just become words. It's easy to believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But God being creator means more than I don't believe in macroevolution, for example. It means more than that. What it means is, is something that has to do with the way that I live in this world that God created. Because I recognize it was all made by him. It's all his and one of the things that means is whatever I have, I have because God gave it to me. Whatever I have that I'm responsible for, I, I, I am a steward over it, but ultimately it's not mine. So God might have given it into my hands for the time being. He's appointed me as a steward over a certain part of his creation. Um, but ultimately, I'm going to give an account to God of what I have done with the, if you'll appreciate the reference, the talents. He's entrusted me with. Because they're his. So you might think back to where that reference comes from. Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents. As Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. And he says the kingdom of heaven. Will be like a man going on a journey. Who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. To another two and to another one. To each according to his ability. So each of them get a different amount. 
Um, you may recall from when we studied this parable in our parables series a while back, even one talent. Sounds like one guy got five coins, another guy got two, and another guy got one. And that's not the case. Even a single talent is a tremendously large sum of money. Um, so give or take a talent of silver is worth roughly 16 years worth of, of day labor or, or minimum wage. So you think about somebody who's working minimum wage and they save their resources for 16 years. And that's about what one talent is worth. So it's a large amount to be entrusted with regardless. But at any rate, the master comes back. And as you remember, he finds the five talent and the two talent men have gone and used what he put into their care shrewdly and profitably. But the one talent man didn't do that. He hid the money away. So when the master returns, the five talent man says, Master, you delivered, you entrusted to me five talents, and here I've made five talents more. You notice he doesn't say, here's my money, look at what I've done with it. He understands that all along this is not his. His job was just to care for it, and then to return it to the master when he came back. It belongs to him. And then you know how it goes with the one talent man. He says, Master... I knew how hard and expecting you are, and I didn't want to mess up. So I've made sure to keep your talent safe, and here's your talent. Take what is yours. Now, the master sees straight through that. It's an excuse. He knows this servant is wicked and lazy. You just didn't want to work. And if you knew I'm such a hard and expecting master, you would have gotten up and done something. But what the parable reminds me of is what the children of Israel would have been reminded of every single Sabbath year. All of this doesn't belong to me. My house, my car, my possession, all of my possessions, even, even my family, those souls that have been put into my charge belong to him. Everything that I call my own, everything I have any kind of sway over, is only what God has entrusted to me for the time being. And I'm going to have to give an account to God for the kind of steward I've been over what he's put in my trust. And I think that can be a very affecting realization. I don't know if the mic is picking that up. My stomach's grumbling and I'm hungry. Um... I think another thing we learn as we reflect on this law, um, as you begin to put everything that we've previously discussed together as we go along, is that any Israelite who truly observes this, this, this Sabbath law, both in the sense of the Sabbath day, Sabbath year, year of Jubilee, etc., though, again, most of them didn't. Um, ultimately, if they're going to observe this portion of the law, it's going to make it a lot easier for that person to do a lot of other things right. Um, so very briefly, um, one of the things that a, ch a child of Israel is going to have because they, they faithfully observe this particular law is the perspective that this is not where I truly belong. I'm really just a visitor. So uh, you may recall from our first Peter series in chapter two, verse 11, Peter talks about being strangers and sojourners. He addresses them at the start of that letter as, as chosen exiles, as the New Living Translation aptly puts it, temporary residents and foreigners. Um, in Colossians 3 and verse 2, we're warned, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, because you're not staying here. In Hebrews 11, talking about Abraham, 
Abraham lived even in the land of promise as if he was a foreigner. Because, as the writer says, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This wasn't where he intended to stay. So this law, that at least every seven years you had this very strong reminder that the land was not your permanent home. And by the by, one of the things Leviticus 25 talks about is that when that year of Jubilee came around, any land that you sold away came back to you. Not just because... But because God had allotted those portions of land and things went back to the way that God set it up because the land is God's. So mom and dad used to own a piece of property on the Lake of the Ozarks. Um, They own a different piece of property there that we happen to have to drive by the old one to get to the, the, the new one every time we want to go there. And we see that old place and everything that they've done with it. And I just I miss that place quite a lot as much as I like the new one. Um, that isn't going back to them unless they decide to strike up a new deal and buy it from them. They don't get to wait till year 49 um, and, and, you know, it comes back to us. It's not going to go that way. It's gone. But it wasn't that way in their system. Year 49 comes and, and those who are, are servants of, of debt, they're released, they're set free. Um, all of those things are, are, are cleared away. Any land that you sold, it comes back to you. Um, a reminder that this land is God's to do with as he wishes. It isn't permanently your home. And what you have, you have because God gave you. So it's a constant reminder that your ultimate goal as a child of Israel is not to live and settle there and have that land. It is to look beyond it. It's the promised land for now, but it isn't going to be the ultimate dwelling place that God has for you. And if I might suggest another brief lesson, I think any Israelite who truly observes this law is going to find it a lot easier to do something else that God requires, and that is to remember the poor. Uh, According to Exodus, the the volunteer crops that came up that year were to be reserved for the poor and the needy. And you think about how amazing it is that God, in effect, says all of you may have to be poor every seven years, no matter how productive your land is. It seems that, that those who are most likely to be charitable are those who understand what it means to be in need. Now, also sometimes those who understand because God has taught them just how blessed they are. But there's nothing um, to teach you to appreciate what need is like, like being in need itself. So I suspect God's law here reminded the children of Israel what that was like. At least for those who kept the law. It would make them a lot more generous towards those who were in need in the other six years. And remember, along with not keeping the Sabbath or the Sabbath years or the year of Jubilee, what are they also constantly condemned for in the prophets? That instead of championing the cause of the poor and the widow and the orphan, you took advantage of them. Well, I didn't see that coming. Not obeying this portion of God's law led to one thing after another after another. You've got this fixture as your life as an Israelite and they just discarded it because they wanted the things of this world more. And that just opened the door for many, many other things. Um, Another quick brief one I'd suggest to you is that the law taught them something about the value of rest. So along with the seventh day requirements, you've got this, this reminder 
that God never intended for man to live without a period of rest. And it is quite easy um, to get not only too consumed with the affairs of others, as we've talked about in our, our Sunday morning class, but also just to get too consumed with various different affairs of whatever it may be. Um, to where I barely got any time to, to do things that are of, of actual importance. I don't think we really have this problem here. Um, but it's very easy for, for members of a congregation to get so busy with all the different things that they've got going on that they don't have the time even to come meet with their brethren the handful of times we meet. Let alone perhaps to study on their own, to study with their families during those other five days of the week or six to, uh, yeah, five days of the week when they're not meeting together with the brethren. Those things are linked. You talk about meditating on God's word, it presupposes you've got the time to do so. So how many times do we find ourselves without the time? Perhaps the time to come to worship and study, or perhaps the time to, to make prayer a regular aspect of your life. Or thinking about the things of God, a regular aspect of your life. And time for that personal and family study together. And making the things of God a, a, a regular part of your day. And I have to wonder, if I struggle with that... If that's the way I am, how would I have done with this law? I know how the children of Israel did with it. They didn't follow it very good at all. Would I have done a lot better? In all likelihood, I'd have done them what I'm doing now. If I'm not making time for the things of God that I know I need to, it's likely I'm finding a way to justify that with myself. Perhaps by saying, you know, I know the Lord really wants me to let the, li- the land lie fallow in this particular area or, or, or the other, but I just can't. Maybe next year. Maybe once we get all this together. Or that together. Well, I don't think I've exhausted the different kinds of lessons that you could derive from thinking about this particular law. Um, but I have exhausted our time together this morning, so we'll draw it to a close. Maybe as we're thinking about this, you've thought of some other things, and if you have... I'd love to hear them. Maybe it's made you think of some different passages. Um, I, I'd love for you to tell me about them. That is, of course, the idea. Uh, the more time you spend studying the inspired word of God, the more you begin to find other things that connect until ultimately you just see how all of it connects to all of it because it's just it's one seamless revelation. All of which points to the salvation that we have in Christ to the glory of God. And were we to take this subject this morning just a little bit further, that's a connection that you can easily make. So the final passage I have for you this this morning is Hebrews 4, starting in verse 9. That's where we'll close. Um, In Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews has warned that the same way the children of Israel had, had often failed to enter into the rest that God had prepared for them, He warns against us doing the same thing, making the same mistake. So he says in verse 9, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as before. So he says, let's make a point and be absolutely certain that we enter that rest. And by way of invitation, I just ask, have you done that? 
Have you striven to enter that rest? Are you continuing to do that? Are you striving for that rest or instead for things here? Uh, Going back to an earlier reference, where do your affections lie? What is your priority? To what are you rich? Is it the things of this earth or the things of God? What have you set your minds on? Things below or things above? So if you need to do that for the first time, to strive to enter God's rest, or if you need to rededicate yourself to that, I hope you'll do so. If you need to become a child of God today, let's do that. Or if you simply need to repent, if you'd like for us to to pray with you, we can do that here and now. If it is something private and you need to keep it there, you'd like to keep it that way, then pray to God even now. It doesn't have to be formal. It just has to be heartfelt. May God help us to strive to enter his rest. And if we can encourage you in any way to do that, please let us know, perhaps even now, while we stand and sing.